Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I am your host, Jesse David Fox. And this week, I'm also your guest. It's true. Uh, this episode, I will be talking about my upcoming book, comedy book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work, which is out November 7th. This book is a culmination of my over a decade covering and considering comedy and the embodiment of all I've learned hosting this podcast. So if you like this podcast, I believe you will love this book. Each chapter focuses on a concept of comedy, like truth or timing or context, and analyzes it from a few directions, citing the most important comedians of the last 30 years. The book is available wherever books are sold, or if you are the auditory inclined, you can also get it by audiobook, read by me. Or if you live in New York or LA and want a signed copy, I'm doing two live events to celebrate the book. First, on November 7th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, I'll be doing a show with Joe Para, Joe Firestone, Marie Fauston, Adam Pally, Nori Davis, and Josh Gondelman. On November 13th at Dynasty Typewriter, I'll be doing a show with Naomi Ekperigan, Chris Fleming, Adam Pally again, uh, Jay Jordan, Jamie Loftus, Christina Catherine Martinez, and uh, a special guest or two. Link to all these things are in the show notes. Okay, but, but if I'm the guest, that means we need a host. The first person I thought of uh, was Gary Goldman, a legendary comedian, great comic mind, the author of The Recent Misfit. Also, Gary was the guest for the single most listened to episode of this podcast, so it felt fitting. So here is Jesse David Fox. Hello, uh, I'm here with Gary Goldman, and Gary Goldman is here with me. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. This is really exciting because I... I... I loved your book, comedy book. This book is is clearly somebody who admires writing and words and books and comedy most of all. And the thing that struck me at the end when I – I think I read it over three days. And at the end, I said, oh, this is such a great love letter to comedy. And then rereading it <laughs> from the beginning, it starts off and says, this is a love story. And I was like, oh, man, why is my memory so bad that I, <laughs> that I don't remember the first sentence? I had highlighted it, too. You can see it right here in orange. A lot of people use yellow. I use 
orange. This mm-hmm. is a love story. And everything comes from from there. There's no there's no page in this book that I skimmed through or or skipped. It was just so strong and the the writing was was extraordinary <laughs> and also the the thing that a lot of people have said about analyzing comedy over the years is the dead frog yeah, yeah, yeah. thing and you dispelled that early <laughs> on which is which is really important and how much how much pushback have you got or did you get when yeah. you first started say a good one or even into this book where there are people who still believe oh nobody's interested when we have so much proof that everybody who is interested in comedy is also interested <laughs> in seeing how the how the sausage is made I think is definitely a thing I got earlier in my career a ton like every comment for let's say my first 5 years of writing about comedy was some version of it and I think there were some comedians that would push back on, especially older comedians. If I, you know, like asked them about it, they'd just be like, "No one cares about that." <laughs> and and maybe it was the case. I don't know what it was like to be a comedian forty years ago, and maybe truly people thought of them as like lesser than clowns. Like truly, it's like, well, these clowns entertain kids. You guys are even worse than that. Right. You're like accompaniment to bar, like bar <laughs> snacks. Yeah. And there, so then older comedians were like, "No one cares about this." And then, and periodically, people would be like, "Well, you know, if I explain that, I think." Gilbert Gottfried was like, oh, if I explain that, then I'm cutting up the dead frog. And I think part of it is protective, right? I do think there is a vulnerability of creating, and I do think it's scary to let people know you're an artist, right? It's like a right. – especially if you've, like, fashioned yourself anything else. Like, I'll, I'm a, a mechanic of jokes or I am <laughs> – like a, or I'm like, I'm a hardworking whatever and, like, I'm not – no fancy artist. So I think there's that. And – there was versions of the first chapter where I dispel that, which was much more defensive. I was like, I know the first response of this book is going to be like, you can't write this book. Yeah. For two reasons. One, that like, no, only comedians can write about this book. No, no regular person can do it. And I, I, I spent less time defending that part of it. But I did feel like I, of the sort of research that I found was valuable, I found the original article where they said that. Or I found the source of it, and it was this article, E.B. and Catherine White, wrote an, an intro to um, this humor book they collected that was also then excerpted in this literary journal. So I got the copy of that literary journal on eBay. And I read it, and I was like, they're not talking about comedy. Right. They don't know what comedy is. Right. They're New Yorker writers, yeah. and comedy doesn't there's, – there's like stand-up comedy isn't a term yet. Right. And we're using them as the, the rules. Yeah. And I think this, the greatest strength – that expression has had is the fact that no one has done it until the last 15 years, really. So then as a result, we're like, well, no one has done it. And then, you know, my career was like, I wonder if I can do it. And then I wonder if people like it. And like, well, people like it. And then yeah. they kept on liking it. So then I kept on doing it. And um, I've had ed- early edit- editors being like, I don't know if you can do that or explain jokes. And then the, the breakthrough is really is being like, you're not explaining why it's funny. Like, why it's funny is the sort of right. alchemy of the person and the, and the artist. But, like, you're ex- you're talking about it. You're, you're talking about how it worked, how, the mechanics of what is happening, why it is interesting. Just like, you know, like, if you're looking at a song, you're not going to be like, well, the musical theory explains why it's good no <laughs> matter what. It's like, no, it's good. And then you can understand the musical theory and then you understand sure. more of how it works. Right. And once I tapped into that... I found comedians were so excited to have people pay attention to them. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Like for for as much and I think once they decided I got it. And I don't know when that happened. It felt like somewhere there was a meeting where everyone agreed <laughs> I got it. I don't know that it was ne- first of all you do get it. But what's more necessary, I think, in, in terms of just generally for humans, is your enthusiasm yeah. about it and your curiosity. So there could have been a time where you didn't get it, <laughs> yeah, but your yeah. curiosity would make it so that eventually you would get it. And I, I think from what I've read, you've, you've always gotten at least how powerful yeah. it is and how meaningful it is and and whether or not you know the mechanics or anybody really knows the mechanics. One thing I loved about this was that you were able to say so many of the things that I've had conversations with people about, but you were able to say it because you're such an excellent journalist in an efficient, elegant yeah. way so that it so that it came out really great. So one of the things that has always irritated me is, well, what makes th- something funny? Mm-hmm. And there are a hundred different, and the, the, the confidence yes. and the conviction <laughs> with people think they know what makes something fun. It's a surprise, and you gotta, yeah, yeah. And, and it's possible that all these things are involved and in some jokes none of it is involved and some things are jokes on jokes where which are impossible to to explain and and i thought you you gave a voice to this idea that i don't have to know why it's funny i just go up there and sometimes over the years i've broken down jokes and said well that's a simple truth and that's a rule of three or things like that but for the most part a lot of it comes out to be the personality context and a lot of the things that you've you've covered so well in here. So I guess the the thing I, I wanted to ask <laughs> sure. you in terms of because you said forty years. Who knows what what uh, people were thinking forty years ago? Yeah. I I was there. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I'm old enough that I know what people were thinking forty years ago because I've been into comedy. Is it similar to where you said you were watching the the Simpsons in '93? So you were six or seven. Yeah, yeah. I was five or six watching. There were afternoon talk shows that had comedians on, and then occasionally I would be awake at 11:30 when when Carson came on, and so I loved it. Whenever they'd talk about, they'd say, you know, I was working out at the store the other night or something like that, yeah. and I and I wanted to go to the store and see them working. Out. And then later on, I would hear conversations and they would talk about particular comedians who were – and Chandling, they always say this about, and he was one of my favorites. They would say he would talk technique and joke mm-hmm. style and, and, and things like that. But in reality, I don't think – they really did. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I. I've never heard anything. Well, you put the other than you put the punchline at the yeah, end, yeah, yeah. and you're trying to build some some tension. But I I loved your section where you talked about Chris Rock's process yeah, for yeah. for bring the pain, and and I I thought that was really interesting. I I think that special also captured something that you alluded to that I, I wanted to discuss with you because it while it doesn't come up in my brain, I think it does come up in a, in a lot of the younger comedians' brains, which is this thing where the comedian's best work, writing, yeah. sometimes performing will stay the same, but 
writing and 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 the, the best jokes usually is before they're all preaching to the to the converted yeah, yeah, yeah. and are doing these uh, these arenas but there have been comedians and i think of maria bamford and and george carlin who did some of their best work while famous and I, and i wonder i wonder what separated them there's there's a humility of course and yeah. i think that that was something that Chris Rock tapped into for his Bring the Pain, where he had he said he had low self-esteem, but he had a huge ego, <laughs> yeah. and this was a gr- great combination for it. And I've heard Bruce Springsteen say the key is to be, to think you're the baddest motherfucker in the world and that you suck at the same time. And and I, I mean I, I don't want to answer my own question, <laughs> but what what do you think? What do you think it is? I'll let you answer. Sure. And get out yeah. Of the way. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, I think. Um, I, I write a little bit about in the context chapter, which is essentially like the context in which the audience, is, the comedian is performing and the context in which the, the comedian is perceived. And I think often what happens as a comedian gets bigger, the, you're getting more and more of the audience showing up for the comedian, not for the material. And, right. Right, and, and then as a result – that's. They, that's- that's really, and I don't think that's bad. Interesting, I, <laughs> yes. but they're there to see a celebrity who they can say we saw. Yeah, blank. And I and I do think it's important on the other side to, I think all comedians, though they should work on the material, do need to understand that, that the audience is there for them as a person. Yeah, right. So they should not be like remove themselves as much as possible to then just be like I'm just my act. It's like <laughs> no, you, an artist is putting themselves into it. You're not a robot. We're, we we. AI is coming. If people want to just perfect joke writing, that is down the pack. So, so there's partly the some comedians, especially as they get now, they get more famous, they have less time, and they're just sort of put in a context of like the audience is so happy to see them and get their perspective, right? So it's like a good joke, like a great joke's difference from a good joke is not the beginning of the joke. Hypothetically, hypothetically, the idea that inspired them to write the joke is the same, but. The difference is like how much they put work into it. But if the audience is like, well, we're just happy to get your perspective. We're in it already. You yeah. don't need to like right. bring in people who don't get it. And I think, you know, why – so what I usually say in terms of now, which is like it seems like Radio City is the real like division line. I think up to large theaters, up to medium large theaters, 3,000 seats in New York, like the Beacon, you can do your best work because I do think – at least comedians, many comedians, the trust from the audience is appreciated and allows them to go a little bit further, go right. deeper, find themselves going out, the, out on the limb, mix that in with some club if they want to. But like I think Maria, her, her material is so risky to right. do that only for audiences that don't know who she is, who don't doesn't like her, is just not supportive enough as an artist, right? I think right. you want some support I don't. Th- I think honestly, I'm fine if you have exclusively support, but like it helps to have some amount of pushback to just like just if your goal is to ex- for people who don't know you to get yeah. it, right? So I think once you get beyond that, once you're getting to Radio City, which is five thousand, beyond that, now you're back to what it was like when you're three years in and you're playing to strangers, people who don't wow. care about you anymore, people who are like, oh, it's you're basically like I want to see comedy. I know that guy. <laughs> that and that. That is what I've heard and felt like in those rooms where you're like, this is a different crowd. This crowd is not listening as much as the crowd at 3,000. Wow. So now your, your act is reverting a little bit. Yeah. So to counter that, you have to put in a ton of work. And so to go back to Chris, you have – the Chris is such a particular case yeah. that he 
um, and he's, that he essentially like created a process to counter some of that. And right. I think when he had more time, now people put a special so quickly that it's not yeah. the same thing. But like for those who don't know, the, the story broadly is that you know Chris broke fairly young. He got an SNL, and he he didn't particularly like it there. He didn't hate it there, so he didn't leave. Was you know, but he didn't love there. He left, and so here he is, kind of famous already. So he can sell a lot of tickets, but not really have put in the work to be that good. So then he's he's performing a show in Chicago, and it's it's one of the like legendary stories I include in the book, which is um, Martin Lawrence is opening for him. He doesn't know who Martin Lawrence is, or he's not familiar with Martin right. Lawrence as a phenomenon. Yeah, and at this point, I think it's like one or two seasons into Def Jam. But he's like, yeah, whatever, Martin's going to open for me. <laughs> and then so Chris is in his dressing room and he hears a loud noise. just like, and, he, and he thinks maybe there's a fight. He goes to check it out. And it's just Martin Lawrence destroying in a way he didn't un, he didn't know was capable. It right. was basically like seeing someone run a four-minute mile. Yeah. And he's like, people can run four-minute miles? Yeah. So then the story is like Chris was like, I need to like relearn how to do stand-up. And he bombed a ton. He just – and like he removed – the ways he cut, could get by in a set and just figured out like what actually really works. And he built himself up. He created a persona seemingly out of cloth yeah. and worked the material so much. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, like he bombing seemingly does not affect him. I've seen him perform three times. I've seen him bomb three times. Right. I've not seen him do well. <laughs> but like, you know, when I first saw him was in high school. I didn't know comedi- good comedians bomb. I didn't know if right. I knew people really bombed. And he just goes up and he's working on material for the MTV Music Awards and just is terrible. And like with no pizzazz. Wow. Yeah. And you're just I've like, noticed that. Yeah. And you're like, he doesn't put any Chris into the. Yeah, yeah. So then, so then I had heard by the time I saw him again, you know, 15 years later, that this is what he does that right. he like deliberately goes up with none of the Chris, none of the things we think of when we think of Chris Rock, none of the. And. So it was at this show called Night Train, which is why it's an act show in, in Brooklyn. And I couldn't tell you how how many things he did to make a person. But he bop, but like essentially, like he kept his coat on. He kept on looking down. Yeah. Anytime something kind of worked, he goes, "What else? What else?" Which is like the <laughs> right, which right, is the, right. Yeah, is yeah, the yeah. sign of a bombing yeah. comedian. But he was yeah. doing it on purpose. Yeah. Because, and he wanted every single sentence not to have any momentum from the previous sentence. He's like knows that if he wanted to, he can do an hour just talking like Chris Rock and the material could suck. And then yeah. what does he learn from that? Right. So instead, he'll just like say sentences out loud. Oh, that got a reaction. Okay, let me tamp it down. Say something yeah. else out loud. And then, and it just, he did it for an hour and then he's like, bye. And and so what's clear is that like, and so part of it seemingly is that, you know, he, as he's talked about, he has a nonverbal learning disorder and uh-huh. and. And seemingly body language probably does not affect him in the same way. But right. and like sign, it's just, just yeah. information. Did yeah. they laugh at this? Did they not? Yeah. And then it's just stored. And it's why bring the pain is what it is, which is like even even now you can feel the electricity, even if you're like, I don't know if I stand by the politics of that sure. that sure. The, the most famous yeah. joke from it. Yeah. But then you watch Bigger and Blacker, which now it's post everyone already seeing Bring the Pain. Bring the Pain is this phenomenon. Yeah. Like a stand-up special had never really been, at least in my lifetime. So you'd be like, now he'll take the foot off the gas. It was like raw, it's but better written. Yeah. it's yeah. Just, the, the amount, he has setups that are better written than most people's punchlines. And so then you're like, wow. that's and to, at, least, at least in a special, I don't think anyone's ever killed that hard. It's like unbelievable. No, no. So like that's, but most people aren't 
willing to do that, able to do that, or need to do that. Like I don't and because in partly because we don't have like a class of critics being like this is better than the other one. Like there does right. feel like with criticism comedy criticism, and I don't this is part of why I don't like writing reviews, is like if you like most people can acknowledge if something is worse than the last special or whatever. But if you say a comedian did a bad job, you're like, but that person's funny. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but their work right. can be different. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, are, totally. These, these are releases. But it feels like most people's relationship to a comedian is not that of an artist who's doing distinct pieces, but instead just like that's the guy I go to for this service. It's like of the many things this book is pushing back, it's that idea. It's like these are distinct artists. And as a result, you can be like they're better at this than that. Yeah. And that's okay to say. Right, yeah. One one thing that was very important to me that you included and relates to this and and what you were just saying about Maria Bamford and criticism is that you acknowledge the, the degree of difficulty mm. with Maria's act versus some other people's acts. And I, and I think that's so important in terms of criticism. And I don't think people necessarily understand that how you're killing to a comedian yeah. is just as important as whether you're killing. To me, I say I'm going to I'm going to kill every every night. I know yeah. this, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I know how to do this and I know what works. But there's a part of me that feels like you saw Goodwill Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. All right, there's a moment late in the movie where his professor or his his mentor, yeah. but really he's smarter than the professor is giving him a hard mm. time and he screams, do you know how fucking easy this is for me? And and that's how I feel with with observational humor. I could I could write an hour and a half and I'm not exaggerating in nine months of old fashioned, did you ever notice? <laughs> and and um and it would kill and I would feel how my what you talked about in this book, pushing this art form yeah, yeah. forward and having respect for it. And the one thing I, I loved and and it, it was so perfectly worded is this defensiveness that certain bad little boy comedians, sure, you sure. call them, have about comedy and not wanting to ruin their precious yeah. comedy by making it grow and, and making it inf uh, inform itself. And I thought that that was so important without you being a tisk-tisk. Yes person and recognizing that there are very funny things within the bad little boy community but uh, i th that that was very important for you to for you to cover that and just the the level of difficulty being something and and this almost feels like i i just read a book about um, how fiction works mm -hmm. it was called how fiction sure. works and it pointed out a lot of these great things that I would have never noticed had I not read this. And this feels like that type of book. This is a great companion for people who love comedy, and it, and it's and it's not so erudite that mm. that it because you you quote certain things from I think Bergson and then the the E. B. White stuff. And I'm thinking I really needed <laughs> Jesse to to translate this into into modern human yeah, speak. Yes. Because it was it was very difficult to digest for me, and I'm and I'm learned. There's many things there, but I think I read all these academic texts or whatever, and I was like, well, no one else has. My job is to translate these things because it's yeah. like I'm not the first person to ever think about comedy, right? And I've met many of these academics, and they they don't have space in the same way to do it, partly because. Um, there has not been mainstream interest, but also like academia, it hasn't had tons of interest in comedy. So like, 
I'm shining a light on these things. These people have been greatly extracted. But like my style of writing is that that is conversational. My style of writing is that like I started as a blogger. I'm like talking to you and like so everything with the book was trying to balance a level of sophistication, a level of not sophistication, a level of yeah. like this is going to be this is really heady to a, a degree that some people might be comfortable with. So here's a more personal story to make it sort of more yes. grounded or here's yes. here's like me being funny because if the book is just so serious and you're like who yes. wants to listen to this most no, serious totally. person on earth talk about comedy and you know you you talk about the idea. I start the book by saying this is a love story, which for two reasons. Three reasons. One, um the first is I had the thought in my head and then I couldn't get over it as that should be the first sentence of the book. Right. Like I was just going in my yeah. life and I thought it and I go, that should be the first sentence of the book. One, that explains the book. Two, the earliest version of the book, I was really obsessed with sections that were sort of not directly connected, but sort of like yeah. you, you'd you see the disparate parts and then they would sort of come together in your brain. Right. I, I would, through the edit process, learned that is too abstract for people and I right. did a little bit better yeah. connecting it. Yeah. But I like the idea of it being one sentence, line break, and then to the next sentence. And then the other thing is when I realized I was stealing that line from Fleabag, um, I was like, oh, I can set up essentially what is a series of callbacks is what I use in the book a lot, which is like I will set up ideas and e- and then bring them back later to actually be using a point. Because I, I kept on thinking, well, I can't use this as a love story. People like you stole that from Fleabag. And then – or they'll th- what I really thought was like they'll think, did he take them from Fleabag? Right, right, right. So then yeah. I'm playing – I'm planting the seed of that. So then when I bring back up the point and use Fleabag as a point of contrast for how popular Seinfeld was, yeah, it's the same thing a comedian is doing, but right. not necessarily yeah. to go yeah. like, ha, 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 more right. like... An Easter egg. Yeah. yeah. And so the other thing with the idea with love is that um, there's this... People talk about this a lot with the America, which is um, conservatives love this country <laughs> like... Um, <laughs> A baby loves their mother or something like that. Yeah. They can do no wrong. Right. They're perfect. Don't yeah. criticize them, whatever. Yeah. And then liberals of America like um, a partner, right? We want to help it grow. Yes. We love it in a way that and, – yeah. and so that was the the guiding principle. I I read this book called Ways of Seeing, I believe by this, um, art, art critic John Berger. Which okay. It's about – it was a radical book about how to look at art and conceive of it differently. And like – and just the idea of that, which was essentially like – Clearly, I think about comedy differently than people have, and I think I get more out of it as a result. Can I show what it's show what it looks like for my brain to perceive comedy in a way so people can do that the same? The goal was not to be like, here are the correct opinions, right? It's the goal was now you have a better ability to cr- create your own correct opinions, your own yeah. the opinions feel correct to you, yes. right? Like it'd be there's a lot of people from critics who want to know like what's good and what's bad, either to confirm their opinions or to learn, right? And I was like, that I'm more trying to empower you to be like, what is better stand-up? And I yes. think, as you point out, which is like this idea of like what is easy, you know, there's that Patrice documentary that I watched. I, I had a log- larger section about Patrice, which is- My had, friend, Mike Bonfiglio directed. Yeah, yeah. He also directed my special. Yeah, he did a great job with it. I yeah. love the Patrice documentary. And, and I started in Boston. He was, he was a year and a half or so- yeah, but complicated. A hundred years better. A hundred <laughs> years better than me uh, but, when when I started. Out. But please continue. Yeah, so in, the documentary is called "Killing Is Easy," and that's he yeah. talks about that. And yeah. you know, part where I talk about him, and there was a larger section was, was comparing him to Hannah Gatsby because they both yes. kind of don't think 
making the audience laugh is that impressive. Yeah. And and I wanted to bring up Patrice because Patrice is now deified, especially by the type of guy that yeah. likes the bad little boy comedians. And the bad little yeah. boy comedians, for those who don't know, <laughs> are not just people who like do broadly defined edgy comedians, but the comedians who like to sort of preface the doing of edgy comedy by being like, I'm not supposed to do this and then yeah. do it. Here's a word yeah. I'm not allowed to say yeah. and then say it. Yeah. And why, though that is shown to be hard, they think that's hard. It's difficult to make people laugh about such. The truth is, as I see it, is that what you're doing is pumping the joke up with a lot of juice. And that juice makes almost anything you say going to get a laughter. Partly because it's like, you know, it's like kids in church or kids at a funeral, <laughs> which is like, if you say anything at all, yeah. the fact that you're breaking that Right. Is, is funny. Opposed to sort of the taboos that like Maria talks about, like mental health or or or, or death or whatever. Yeah. That which is actually difficult, which the yeah. audience does not feel yeah. the juice. They feel the opposite yeah. of the juice. They're That's like, a tightrope. Yeah. yeah. So to and you bring... have to provide your own juice and recontextualize yes. the juice, whereas the juice is already there for these people. The third yeah. rail yeah. is already live. Yeah. So then if you yeah. so then if you say it, you say any of these words, you're not allowed to say the R word anymore, right? Or right. whatever. You're not yeah. allowed to say, yeah. I liked when I was able to call yeah, gay yeah, people yeah. this, right? Yeah. And then the audience is like, what? I can't say that at work. <laughs> and then, so it's it's worse art. And the also like, I, what I get most frustrated is like, then think people think comedy is that. Yeah. I go to comedies because they can yeah. say the things I can't say at work. Right, yeah. And, you know, that gets into a lot of things. But like, that is... A long way of saying it, just sort of like how, because I'm what I don't do is go. This is funny. This is not funny. I essentially remove that as a uh, way of talking about comedy, because I, you know, as I say, it's like if two people find something funny, technically it counts as funny. So, so then I'm not. That has become the default for all talking about comedy for its entire history. Yeah, is someone going? Well, that's not funny, or this right. is funny. Yeah. And it's like, well, I learned nothing from that. All except for <laughs> right. your personal taste. Yeah, that maybe. funny is funny, which is reductive. Is, yes. that, is that the proper use of the word term reductive? It is I, reductive. Yeah. But it, yeah, the funny is funny is like, as I say, of course, like the, yeah. the, those two, two yeah. words are the same. But <laughs> as defined, it's, it's not because it's often used by certain people who are like, you look, I don't care. Funny is funny. Yeah. But what you mean is like, if it's funny to me, I think it's good. And then if it's, it's not funny to me, it's not good. And it's like, well, if like any art, if it all appealed to you one person, then that is wrong. Like yeah. unless, you know, like other than maybe if you're a person like me, which is like it's all interesting. Even comedy I hate. I watched a special recently, which I won't name because I don't want to get uh, people mad at me, that I was like, this is the worst thing I've seen in a very long time. <laughs> By far. Like as bad as a lot of people I say they are, this, this was worse. Wow. And this person is on the rise. and And I go – Wow, this is so revealing about where we are right. right now. And you know, and I call this person the Antichrist, but like in, in almost a good way. Like it's almost like maybe people will be like, finally, we have a pure bad. So everyone <laughs> could re- reunite and yeah. be like, oh yeah, like um this is too tangential, but like people were maybe were unfair to Dane back when people were so mad at Dane, but at least yeah. there was like an enemy that people pointed right, to. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but I don't want to right. 
you're on the hook on for Dane conversations anyway. No, I'm okay. All right, cool. Yeah. You alluded to something else that I thought was so great and and I wanted to cheer for, which is that and and this could be regarding any of the comedians who deal in in mm. sort of racist ideas and and or homophobic, transphobic, is that the bigotry thing, the racist thing, it was done a long time ago. Yeah. So when when Chappelle won on Saturday Night Live and he said Jews run Hollywood, I was infuriated and also I as a as a Jew because yeah. it's dangerous, but also as a comedian, I was saying, yeah, Lenny Bruce said <laughs> very similar things a long time ago at a time when it was when it was much harder yeah. to say these things and it was riskier. And Marlon Brando, as much as a schmuck as he was, said in a Playboy interview, I think in <laughs> either '68 or '74, something ridiculous like yeah. that, that Jews run Hollywood, and and you're not brave, you're not original, and you. <laughs> You were better a long time ago. Well, it, it is a thing of I was thinking about it recently because a lot, a lot of the people who do this humor now, they're sort of the bad little boy types, or the sort of it's either ironic or I'm doing the thing of I am stating a progressive opinion as a cushion to then say the words out loud. Yeah, and that. So then they go like, "Look, my intent is good. Right. I'm defending gay people or whatever." Right. Yeah. The thing is regardless of that as sort of a moral argument, which one can have, is like that truly was like what was cutting edge 25 years ago, right? So it's like, it's to me, yes, it is like, I don't care about this, but also yeah. like I went through it. So it's it's partly just the watering down of a sort of comedic it, idea. Yes. Like essentially, yeah. like at minimum, like truly everyone is doing like the same three Louis C.K. jokes. <laughs> And 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 when Louis C.K. It's so funny because like when Louis C.K. was acclaimed, a lot of it was not for those three jokes. But then those three jokes have emerged yeah. as oh, we can just do those, but for new words, right? right? Yeah, he did, he did the word. I think he had the n-word joke. He has an r-word joke. F-word. And, and he did yeah. all of them, right? Yeah. So now comedians are yeah. kind of just doing. Oh their yeah, 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 yeah. Joke. totally, totally. It's a franchise. <laughs> and so then it's not it's not cutting edge in terms of like artistry it just truly is you're playing for audiences who are even who are who to be fair are a lot of people yeah who are who want that and i and i don't begrudge those people necessarily at the the audience because they're just showing up and they're like oh. no i no i understand <laughs> that yeah and yeah. so i try not to like be like but that's why this book is so important so then it's yes so a lot of it is like well if everyone re read the book then then they would enter in this and be like, it's not so funny anymore. But right. I know, I know yeah. that it's kind of not yeah. good. Yeah. Like, I do think so much, you know, so much goes into comedy that, it, that people are like, well, the, either it's a good joke or it's not a good joke. It's like, that's not true. You're, 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 you're bringing so much of yourself and what your idea of this person is to seeing them perform stand-up. And if you – and so many of these people fashion themselves sort of vanguards or on outlaws or the greatest comedian of all time. <laughs> and – Can you imagine? Can you imagine George Carlin <laughs> saying that or even Richard Pryor? It, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. But yeah. so so then you're like there's a cognitive business like one of the greatest comedians of all time. This seems hard. If I did this at work, yeah. I would get fired. And yeah. he's playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so – but if they read the book, they're like, oh – kind of like not cool right. he's not maybe he's not that good like yeah. maybe even his friends are better than him it's just so people like give it like one more second but then maybe we can 
you know, create a culture of discourse around it. But like the hope is like, oh, they can like appreciate comedy. There'll be more comedy they like because of it is the hope. It's like ultimately I was like people are buying this book. They shouldn't leave this book being like, actually, comedy sucks. I hate it. Like they should – like I understand – you could that's a fine opinion to have. But it felt bad having people pay for a book and have them leave the book feeling worse. <laughs> oh, I, that's not going to happen because you make such a great case for how powerful yeah. comedy is as a comfort, a soother, a healer, a connection, yeah. and and those things are the most important part of it. This is just you're, you're giving kind of a, a a thing that that is emerging now, which is an aesthetic. Yeah, the aesthetics of it and and what makes something more difficult than the other. And and so I wanted to ask you about this aspect of it, which is. People have very strong feelings about what comedy has done yeah. for their life, and I, yeah. and I know, for instance, when I did the the jokes about uh, the grapefruit versus grape, or or even even the abbreviating the the states, yeah. people were very happy to meet me after the show, but nobody was in tears like they have been when I've been touring after the yeah. Great Depression, and people unable to speak because they were so moved and things like that. And, and I'm not saying that out of ego, but I probably am. But it just changed the way I related yeah. to, to comedy and recognized how it was more important. And also, you can't go back. I mean, I still do some observational stuff, but you can't go back to yeah. only being observational after you've seen how powerful this can be. And and as, comfortable, as much as you're comfortable yeah. to talk about this, there are two moments in your life, two seminal moments of tragedy where where comedy and I I have the same thing but not as dramatic yeah. as as you have and it was just it you did what you expect of a great comedian which is you gave something of yourself tell me what you were th thinking and in including that because there is an editor in some universe that says nah the author shouldn't be this much into the yeah into the investigation there's a few things one it's it's I've always been interested in including personal things when I write criticism broadly defined, partly because um, one, I don't know if I, my brain has the recall to think of enough examples. So it was always like a trick of like, and then otherwise it's hard to do like research of like, this impacts this way, where it's like, if yeah. you have something, you have your example. Sure. And, and so I did it, I used to do it a lot when I started writing for Vulture, um, I would write these sort of essays that were partly personal, partly criticism. And I, I liked them quite a bit. And I liked how it felt. And, um, and then eventually what happened was the internet became bigger. Our sort of like the, the small amount of bubble of the internet you were in sort of broke. So then your content, which is sort of – and I say content because that is how it's consumed. Just <laughs> going out to people without the context right. of anything. Yeah. So they're just like, I'm fans of this. I don't give a shit about the, your tragedy because, like, I didn't come there for that. But I don't have – that's not my relationship to the word, right? To, like, yeah. I came for reviews. Tell me if Blended, the Adam Sandler movie, is good or bad, right? Yeah. And I write this personal essay about just for how much I cried watching it because I come from a blended family or whatever. Yeah. And so then I stopped because I, I basically was like, the internet does not deserve my life. <laughs> and I think that of the many things of why I didn't become a comedian, that, like, ultimately um, – I am I, the my desire to protect myself is greater than my desire to right. get people to laugh at me. Right. And 
But in, in writing, and especially in a book, where it's, it's, you know, to get that stuff, especially the, the last chapter, which is, and um, you got to read a whole book. But so, <laughs> so the first part, they had goals. Um, and I'm not trying to be evasive, but it, I will answer the question and then decide how I want to get into it. Sure. And it's like the – I felt like if a person's going to read this whole book, they need to know why this guy thinks this way a little bit. So I needed at the beginning about like what it meant to me. Yeah. If there's going to be a certain amount of comedy matters and both matters – period, matters to this generation, matters to me, the person you decided to invest your time in. I should like kind of explain a little bit what that has felt like. And so in the first chapter, I talk about how my mom passed away when I was seven. And just sort of my feeling of what it was like as a kid, not even the, the passing, just like when I think about how I felt most of my life, um, and what comedy felt like as a kid. And I wasn't it wasn't one to one. I wasn't like my mom passed away, go watch The Simpsons right, right. now. It's just right. sort of like it felt better than times not watching comedy, you know? And yeah. and it was, and as I said, like, um I'm not there in memoir writing or, or a lot of writing, there tends to be sort of a A B relationship to a lot of tragedies. Like a terrible right. thing's happened oh, yeah, in yeah, yeah, my entire yeah. life. And yeah. that's easier for and I I, yeah. I personally <laughs> Of my many, many opinions I have, I have a lot of opinions about how psychology is written about. Um, and <laughs> my dad's a therapist and also I study psychology. So th- and so I didn't want that. I wanted right. to be like my brain had predispositions. I, yeah. I was probably going to have obsessive compulsive disorder in some capacity no matter what. Um, and so as a result, that's my relationship to my brain. A thing happens. Tragedy happens. It focuses the part of you you have, right? Like – their descriptions of what it was like as a little kid that kind of sound like me now, whatever. And you sort of, your path somewhat picked itself. So I wanted to explain, like, why there's this guy who's, if if you enter this book and have not thought deeply about this at all, didn't even know there's something deeply, and then it's, like, by far the most deeply anyone has ever thought about this subject. <laughs> but let me just yeah. interject one idea, which is so impressive about this book because it does get into deep things and, it, yeah. and it's interesting because it intersected with another book that I'm reading that has nothing to do with comedy called Denial of Death. Yes. Well, and, yeah, which I, is a big book. Yeah. Inspire, inspiration for me as a thinker. Yeah. It's it's huge. And and it, it makes a, a, a lot of great comments about life. Not that many about comedy and stand-up. Sure. Well, one. Right. Well, one that I say. Yeah. yeah. But it, but still, just the the depth that you went into research this, but also the depth of your of your brain and where you go for for information and and ideas. But it also talks about Viktor Frankl and his yeah. relationship, and just about any category he has an idea or a, a thought on. There's a lot of weight to it, yeah. because of what he survived, and he yeah. talks about how how uplifting uh, comedy can be, and and so it's not just your example; it's Viktor Frankl. And yeah, and, and I I read that book Ernst, before, and yeah. I said, yeah, I quote him twice in the book. Well, yeah, so let alert. me let me, <laughs> but this is the best compliment that I'm getting to, which is that. 
okay, so you have man's search for meaning, you have denial of death. These are yeah. pretty heavy things. And also, your book is easy to read. And as John Irving said about Kurt Vonnegut, and this, he was saying that a lot of people didn't care for Kurt Vonnegut in the critical world because mm-hmm. he was so easy to read. And you can't be a great writer if yeah. you're easy to read. And John Irving said this in the Kurt Vonnegut documentary. He said, it is not easy to be easy to read. And and so kudos to you because this was a, this was a book that covered a lot of heavy yeah. things with a, with a lot of deep thinkers and deep thought by you, and it was easy to read, which is a, a very high compliment. Yeah, I mean, that is the... If I'm going to be interviewed by this book, I have to give myself compliments. It's going to be hard. Yeah. If I have any skill... <laughs> okay, I, I'll give you a skill. <laughs> no, like, I, I being easy to read is sort of the basic of it, right? I think it's not that I am, like, a particularly lean... Th- you know, like, I think there's two types of people that are easy to read. There's people who are, like, so... Yeah, clear. Minimalists. Yeah, yeah that, that they're yeah. sort of, and even clear thinkers are just like, I got this is exactly it, and they just like boom, 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 boom. And I am not that. My brain, if I think at its best, is sort of like we're we're going, we're going to see where this journey ends, and hopefully, I can think of something interesting as a result of putting myself there. Like, there's a lot of chapters where I'm like, where is this getting to? <laughs> and then, oh, it's get here. Now I could re- reverse right. engineer yeah, it, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I'd read. Things, I think there's something really useful. There's people that, that I always admire them, their writing, because they'll have like, they'll cite these random studies. Like, how do they find it? It's like, and I realized part of it's like, you're somewhat procrastinating. You're like, I'm talking about this thing. And you just like Google if any academics yeah. are about this topic. And you're like, oh, well, I guess instead of writing, I can read Bell Hooks' book about community or something. And yes. then just in case. And like, and maybe there'll be something there. And then I'd read it and then being like, I. No, I can't just be like, well, this person said, can't I just put a big block quote? That's against the rules, at least to me. And and I did not – one, I think my attention span is such that I, I am allergic to this. I, I have a sense of when I, something feels boring to me. I get it. Which is maybe a little bit too fast like sure. in terms of that compared to most readers. But like – you know, I, I started professionally writing, writing 12 posts a day that were 90 words long. I'm like – there's no time for it. It has to be over before you even realize right, it, right. you know? And so there would always be sort of these things that either were either heavy or heady, let's say. And, you know, sort of these esoteric ideas about, um, you know, I'm talking about laughter. And then next thing you know, I'm talking about the post-structuralist architects or whatever. and And that's partly because... I learned what post-structuralists right. were while working in the book. Well, that's exactly what is happening in comedy. Yes, and I love <laughs> that because it was a great analogy for something I've thought about over the years, which is that there are still realist painters. Yes. And there are still houses <laughs> yes. you can live in. And the the defensive comedians are worried they're going to take away our setup punch. Yeah. And no, you're just you're expanding it, and it's it's... I think it's all part of the cult of, of capitalism, which yes. makes us so insecure that we're going to lose our yes. jobs because somebody is doing – and the thing is, is there will always – and you point this out so beautifully in the book – there will always be a market for hacky yeah, yeah. comedians with with the easy punchlines and, and it's the dominant force and and expanding and okay. the art yeah. is, is helpful for all of the artists. To explain post-structuralist architects were essentially – and this, it's a niche group because essentially you can't build houses like this right. because no one wants a house they can't live in. <laughs> but essentially we're like, as a testament to pure design, we should not care about how humans relate to it at all. Yeah. It should just be what looks 
and and is most architecturally interesting. And as a result, his, his name is Peter Eisman, I believe, made a lot of really uninhabitable places. And um, the you know the other um, example and the main example that I bring up is this idea of end, the end of art, which again was sort of us talking to. Um, Christina Catherine Martinez, who's a comedian but also an art critic, she brought up this idea. I was like, well, that's a sort of exactly the thing I'm spinning in, which is um, the, photo- the photograph was invented in the early 19th century and immediately changed what painting was for. And basically painters did not need to represent what people looked like because we had a th- technology that was better for it. The difference is most painters were like, thank God, I don't have to paint rich people and their kids anymore. <laughs> I could be an artist. Yes. As I think an artist should right. be. And that is as any and so I make that comparison there. Right. So it's and when I thought about the book as a whole, I was like, I can do I can talk about post-structuralist architects and I can talk about um painters. This like idea I can talk a real long time about the the invention of photography because I have a chapter where I talk about how poop jokes are funny or something. Yes. Like I yes. it's I'm not an academic. I can't write that way. And but also like, to but be it like, is academic it, enough for academics to enjoy. I think. So. I, th- I mean, the academics who've read it have enjoyed it's it. It's very smart. Oh, thank you. It's. It, so the goal was like, I wanted to take it seriously, but not being like taking seriously. It sucks. <laughs> right. So it's like, look how much fun taking seriously. Right. You're, you're a teacher. You want to be a cool teacher who's yes. like making this thing fun and not removing the fun out of it. I try not to write the book defensively, but like the things that I was like, is this going to be a bummer to comedians? Be like, oh, no, it's just like, and then the other thing is that well, I did have- Well, that's a good comedians. And I had, did, <laughs> had yeah. And then I had, had an editor, my editor, at times be like, this is drier than other sections. Add anything. So oh, I was I like, like, well, that. that's easy. Yeah. Because my instinct, even when writing, is too many things. And yes. then, so then I, because I, and- I try to be more what I you know I'm reading it nine million times. So I try to be like, okay, I don't need this parenthetical or whatever. And like, if I'm including a hard joke, a joke that's really a joke, it has to be for a reason. Even if that reason is this joke is so stupid, I can't believe I get to put it in a book. <laughs> and there's two of those jokes that I think are just so dumb, though they are they're uh, highbrow references. There's one that's a reference to Waiting for Godot, and there's one that's a yeah. reference to Cask of the Montiago, or Cask of Montiago. That's but- <laughs> that's an extraordinary joke. That yeah. is not, that is, I love that uh, joke. It's, it's, it's just yeah, so it's silly. A, it's, I don't like spoiling it, but right, it's truly but it's what I wrote also, that. I'm so proud that I wrote something so, that, that's in a book. Like, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's really strong. And I, I, there were several, countless, or more than I am willing to count times where I was like, "Oh, I wish I thought of that." That's so. That's Thank so you. great. That's, the, that's the, the, yeah, because the the one of the great ones was about how gangsters talk. They say "see" at the end of every <laughs> at the end of every sentence. See, yeah. and you included it in the thing, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, why the, didn't I think of that? that? I've been doing this for thirty uh, years." Th- that sentence was in the section that my editor thought was kind of boring because it was just like, "Here's the entire history of stand right, live stand up right, comedy." Right, right. Yeah, and. I want to get through it as fast as possible because one, there's been books written about it. Yeah. And two, it's a thing of like if you give anything that's a big topic more space, then you're eliminating things. But if you get it yeah. down as small as possible, then you're yeah. like, well, now I get it. It's quick. Yeah. And I do that twice in the book. I do the now, The book ramps right up and you get right into it. It doesn't, it didn't require a lot of, I, was like, I, I yeah, need to tell these, you all these things. It's and, like you need to yeah, know these terms. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. what you know because yeah. comedy is 100, whatever years old, 200 years old. And, yeah. and people, because 
it doesn't age well. People have so little understanding of history of it. So I just like here's it. You know, I so it's I did the history of that and did the sort of history of this idea of truth in comedy. Where where did this thing come from? And I try to get through that as fast as possible. Yeah, because it is, and that was sort of fun of being like, how how did this word becomes to the fore? And I was like, oh, it's gonna like this, 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 that. Yeah, it's like it's 1950s, 1960s, and it's this, and then it's like Carlin prior, and then it's like, well, there's the models, then you had Bill Hicks, and blah blah blah. Yeah, and then Louis C.K. and then again to Louis C.K. But right, but then it came (laughs) back a couple of weeks ago with the yes, or last week with the New Yorker piece on (laughs) Hassan. Hassan. But How, I couldn't believe that. I was like, I that, wanted to bring that up just sure, in case yeah. you wanted to uh, cover it, <laughs> because here's what I was thinking. I don't care <laughs> that much. I can't imagine that com- uh, people outside of com- comedy world will care how their whether their jokes are true. However, it just seemed bizarre, and I think, man, I I am glad I'm not in the center of this this particular storm because it, it's it's troublesome. So I wrote that chapter. It's my it's, it was my two favorite chapters of the book: the chapter about truth and chapter about laughter. And the thing about truth, I was like, well, this will make sense if you're reading the book, and I think it'll be really interesting and provocative. Yeah. But no one knows to care about this. Right. Like, like it was. There's chapters where I'm like, um, once you read it, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I didn't think about this, but in, you don't even know that this is a thing that's happening. Yeah. And then that story comes out, yeah. and I have a million fe- feelings, which is like, oh, I wish my book was already out. I'd be the <laughs> freaking expert on this <laughs> right. thing. Yeah. Like, this one story comes out. Apparently, everyone cares about it. I'm yeah. by far the expert about yes. it. I've written like yes. eight thousand words about this idea. Like, how where did it come from? What is the model? Blah blah blah. Yeah. And so, and I so I went through a lot of feelings. My first thing was just sort of like. Well, if everyone read my book, how would it change, right? If everyone knew what I knew watching that, what would that mean, right? Like, I do think, not unlike the Louis thing, which is part of the sort of, like, not that people are interested, but the sort of amplitude of feeling about it is the sort of slingshot of how truthful you assume they are and then how truthful they are, right? right? If you go into it, as I do, which is, like, I don't care about the data points of any comedian's life for the most part. No offense to <laughs> But like I'm trying to feel something. And I do think abstractly you do feel things as a result of his stories. Now, so on some – so what would happen? They would watch it and be like – would they probably would still think what he said was true. Yeah. But they would – the weight of that truth would not be what really defined it, right? But then – and then this story comes out. And I think people would, if, and again, this is post they've read my book, they'd be like, it is still weird. And also, the, this is the first time it's ever happened to a comedian. It happens all the time. People fact yeah. check movies all the time. Sure. So it's not radical. Like, right. Um, it's just jarring because it's never happened before. And I, yeah. but, but a comedian's like, I didn't know that's happened to us. Well, now that we care about comedians, this is going to yeah. happen. And this overlaps. So It's so interesting. It's like I have the fifth chapter of my book, which is about politics. And trust that's involved in that and how important trust is more than almost anything else about what comedians are offering people because people don't trust the news anymore. Um, and I do think there is some resentment for people in the news towards comedians. It's not like comedians were like in 1980, hey, we shouldn't like news anymore. You should only trust comedians. Is that right. people started to not trust the news and comedians yeah. just were good at it. Yeah. So then you have the sort of like part of the world that cares about what comedians are doing because they're in this position. Then you have this sort of like idea of them as artists who are in position to be like, I'm telling a story that is, I'm trying to get them to feel something about this thing that is politically relevant, which is within the bounds of an artist to do. Um, 
you know, like I don't look at Guernica and be like, that's not what the people look like. <laughs> but no one was going to Picasso being like, you are, yeah. I'm, you're the paper of record on this right. story. Right. I can't tell what's happening. Everyone has freaking bullheads. Yeah. So I think it was those things clashing against each other, which sure. is he's maybe considered for The Daily Show. And then they're like, well, if you're going to be considered a Daily Show, you're, you have to be held to a certain sort of standard. Now, because we, the people that host The Daily Show, have a certain sort of status, you can say they should or shouldn't, but it's too late they do, right? Yeah. Like, I'm, da- John Stewart, his entire time was like, no one gets the news from me. No one takes me seriously. I'm just a comedy <laughs> show. And maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe it wasn't in terms of when he was saying that. But, like, he's wrong. People did get the news from him. Yes. He was quite good at it. Yes. He obviously took himself seriously. He created acolytes who say the same thing and act the same way, which is, like, yeah. no one gets – John Oliver's like, no one gets the news from me. I'm just a comedian. And it's like, come on, yeah. man. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> like, I know. Most – a lot of magazines and newspapers can't s- support financially the amount of fact-checkers these shows have because TV show budgets are doing better than a lot of newspapers and magazines. Sure. So as those things culminating, I do think the discussion would be different. I hope when people read the chapter, they they don't feel differently about it, but they more like understand that at some point a decision was made. This is the thing that I'm most interested about. And if I were to interview him, I would ask, like, you didn't go in with blank page be like, I know what first of all I'll do. I got this thing I'll lie about. Right. You were it's like any other comedian yeah. thing where a joke starts with something. And you start telling it, and it gets a certain reaction. And you're like, it needs to get a different reaction. Yeah. Be it laughter or not laughter. Right. And it's like you did with the machine. Yeah. So, so the yeah, yeah. So I, the example I use is Bert Kreischer's The Machine, which is based on an interview he did with me, which is like he realized that when I was trying to prove his correct, the audience didn't care about that. They were more invested in the actual story. Yeah. What would make sense is the ending of the story. That's what the audience thinks the ending is. Com- comedy is an audience-driven art form. They're correct. The audience is always right. They're the customers. <laughs> so what happens if the same thing is brought to a sort of show like this? At Maybe, right? I think at some point a decision had to be made, which is like it's we're doing it like this. It needs something. The characters are too abstract. We need a sort of like more clear villain of the people that prosecuted us. You know, like, oh, the feeling of... Um, how nervous I was about my kid does not reach the audience how I'm telling it. If I just say I'm so nervous that someone might do something to my kid, um, they'd be like, yeah, sure, we all care about kids, right? Yeah. So I need to come up with a story. Well, who knows? Sure. Like, But that's the thing that's like, do I think I do not want to like, oh, they'll read the story and then not care. But I do think that like there is – there are ways people are talking about it. Like he just got up and is a liar, and right. like, and not like he was doing anything in related to a piece of work. Yeah. And now, obviously, his defense was like, "I'm a, only an artist, and that's the only rules." But like, there was like, he's just a guy talking up there. That's that yeah. was what was most frustrating is that right. people are using the standard that I push back about so much in the book. It's that people's assumption that comedians aren't doing anything. Right. And I'm like, at all times you're seeing comedian, they are both writing and acting. Yeah. And just knowing that emboldens your certain. Uh, um, creates a richer picture of sort of what happened and makes it a much more complicated thing idea. We'll be right back with more me and Gary Goldman. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. 
Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional add for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to Gary Goldman talking to me, Jesse David Fox. One thing I, I found really helpful was a, was a sentence in which you said that we, the comedians might not be changing opinions, but you're re, reinforcing. Mm, yeah. And the other thing that I want to discuss with you in that, in that light is this theory that I have is, is that comedians are great at letting you off the hook. And, yeah. and I remember... I remember I had a, a girlfriend who wasn't great at being a girlfriend, but she was great at giving me guidance in terms of, of art. Yeah. And there was this joke I had which depended on me saying that I didn't follow the news. And yeah. Norm MacDonald has a, has a similar one years later anyhow where he says he doesn't follow the news. And then you're like, no, you know everything. You're a brilliant man. She said – you read the paper every day. Mm. You read every uh, New Yorker, every Atlantic, every Harper's. You're letting the audience off the hook and telling them they don't have to follow of the news. Of all of them. I, I yeah. didn't think that would be and, it. Yeah. And she said, and the joke isn't good enough to support yeah. you lying about this. And 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 it caused me to think about this idea of letting the audience mm -hmm. off the hook and in good ways, which yep. is – Comedians for me let me off the hook in terms of I was a single virgin when I was a teenager and I'm listening to these comedians talk about being I remember Fred Stoller have these yeah. great jokes about not being able to to date and and Gary Shandling and and Richard Lewis talked about being in therapy and mental health was a suspect uh, subject yeah. that that I would think of all the time and think I was alone and then you hear these comedians talking about being in in therapy so uh, comedians. I remember the first comedian I ever, the first person I ever heard talk to strangers about being on on Prozac was a mm. comedian. They were always on the and and Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams talked about mental illness. Maria Bamford went yeah. even further. Chris Gethard talked about these things. They let you off the hook, and it was such a meaningful position to take. 
but there's the other side of this. And you were so great at pointing out the other side of things. For instance, yeah. yes, there are things you can't say anymore, but you can also say pregnant without worrying about the, yeah. the network censors. So comedians are also great at letting you off the hook for being racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Yeah. And that is is what in, infuriates me in this funny is funny and all this. You're, you're, Todd Glass always says you're feeding idiots. Mm. You're feeding idiots. You're giving them the out and yes. letting them off the hook. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's a few things. I mean, as, as I say, like, the, the Victor Frankl quote I think I do is some version of that, like, laughter or humor or has the ability to sort of create a aloofness, a detachment yes. that allows us yes. to lighten yeah. the feeling about something. And, and I think a lot of people go to comedy to lighten the feelings of a lot of things. You know, often certain subjects become the focus, which is, like, politics or sort of race or whatever. But, you know, as I say in the book, is like, mostly people want jokes about dating because dating is so hard. Like young people just want jokes about how dating is hard. <laughs> right. I'm amazed by it. As I get older, I'm more amazed at how much young people just want to talk about how dating is hard. And then, you know, as pa- people get older, they want to talk about how raising kids is hard, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that is a feeling that they can give them. And it's probably by lightening a subject, by um, just literally putting less mental weight on on it or giving people the vocabulary to understand it and and that is the that is what the comedy can do so then what are you doing that for right so in the chapter the long shepherd book it's about political correctness broadly defined it's called the line and i say there's many ways in which an audience can be offended in you know and on some it's talking about taboos like death or mental mental illness and so a comedian talks about it lessens the feeling that you have associated with it. Um, either by addressing it and be like, oh, I'm not alone, or literally just being like, oh, that thing is a joke. Death is a joke. You know, I talked about Marie right. Bamford yeah. a few times, and yeah. there's um, it, the set she did for Late Night, uh, late, late, Corden, late, yeah. Yeah, late Late Show with yeah. James Corden. I can't talk about it. the set, I'll cry. My mom got stage four lung cancer, and uh, she decided uh, to not have any more treatments. She went on hospice. I don't know if you've seen hospice in action, Oh my God, that is the best healthcare we have in this country. Uh, 24-hour nursing care, all the morphine you can eat with no one watching. Treat yourself, go hospice. Uh, My mom, so positive. You know, the great thing about this past couple of years has been the first time in my life I've been below goal weight on Weight Watchers. So my membership has been gratis. Mom, you do know that even if a coffin is tight around the hips, eventually it fits. <laughs> oh, honey, don't do that one. That's not a good one. But the joke's on me, because she got herself cremated, and now she's just a pound! <laughs> the way she talks about death is just so cavalier. Yeah. And that, for people who death is a concern, which is a lot of people, denial of death would argue everybody, yes. it's, it's lessening a weight that is very powerful, right? But also, people don't want to, a lot of people don't want to be racist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever. And, and they don't want to think they are. And a comedian has the ability to take that and being like, um, let's say you're, and you know, I, I, you're mostly not transphobic, but maybe a little bit. You're a joke about it. And it's all about the joke in your brain and might make you go like, oh, I'm not as worried about it. I'm less 
I'm less constrained. I'm free to be just not transphobic at all. Or some people might go the other way, which is like, oh, this sort of like light transphobia that I had actually isn't so bad. This person's talking about it. Right. It's not so serious. Yeah. We shouldn't take their plight so seriously. Blah, blah, blah. And like, or if you're, you know, the other thing a comedian can do is like people repeat jokes. People repeat, repeat jokes of all type. The It is a byproduct of the fact that stand-up comedy grew out of jokes, like classic joke book jokes. Yeah. So as a result, the jokes, and for a while, comedians were literally just doing those jokes. Yeah. And so, you know, people like my Bubby and would go to, <laughs> would go to the Catskills and hear jokes, and those were the jokes that she then had, right? Yeah. And that does not stop. That, that if anything, that becomes more so when there's a challenging issue, right? So um, I remember um, post Me Too, Cameron Esposito had a special called Rape Jokes. And I remember there's things that she said that really gave me a vocabulary to think about and talk about. And as a result, my brain expanded. And on the other hand, if you're prone to being any of those ists, racist, sexist, whatever, it gives you a racist joke. And you are not a comedian. Right. You are not good at knowing the difference. Yeah. You, like, as... You're Michael Scott. Yeah, you're yeah. Michael Scott. As a, yeah. you, know, you, you think... You're just it's all fun here, who cares? Or you think you know what the joke is about. Yeah. Right? And like but the truth is not unlike all art, the perception of the consumer is can be radically different than the intention. And it is on the comedian to decide if it's if they care about that. And so, you know, as I write about Dave Chappelle quite a bit in the book. Both and in multiple chapters in, in times they talk about how good he is. Yeah. Um, how talented he is, is is maybe a better way of putting it. Um, he famously cared so much about how his jokes were being received. Like that's part of the Dave Chappelle lore. Yes. And then now he's decided for whatever reasons, unclear, that he does not care how his jokes were received. He cares about only the intent of his jokes. And that – so the, I, I bring those things up when in the book – Right, but it's like, like that Chekhov short story, right? Where which, uh, there's no way I was uh, having an affair with this woman, or I forget what it was, but I read it in high school, and it, and it I'm reminded know. of it all the time. The more you deny, I mean, it's the lady doth protest yeah, yeah, too yeah. much, but it was a short story in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. Do, he doesn't care what we think. He cares a lot what we. Think. Yes, and I mean, like it, you don't dedicate that many hours of talking yeah, to anyone. Yeah, unless you're very sensitive. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. Like the thing that I say is like it's really good for people to be sensitive. Like yeah. I, I think it's. Generally, I think good for people on, in their everyday life to be sensitive. It's good for the audiences to be sensitive because that means they're invested in the material. Um, I think a lot of go bad comedy is a result of um, both the audience and the comedian not being being afraid to be sensitive and figuring out ways to protect themselves, yeah. right? And the audience is by like, don't talk about anything I'm scared about hearing about, <laughs> right. right? So then it's like, so they talk about death, and then they're like, "Don't do that." I'm so the that's why it's so hard is that they yeah. don't. But and then if you can relieve that in any way, there's the one the laughter can be tremendous and a different yes. sort of laughter, and then yes. they have a different relationship to it. I feel like we're we're probably getting towards a time where we <laughs> sure. should wrap up. Well, but is any there anything I w you wish I had asked? No, you? I, I, okay. Well, let me think. Mm, I talk covered a lot. Um, I think I covered. Make sure. Make sure you, I want to make uh, sure you have everything 
yeah, I think I covered everything I wanted to uh, cover, at least in my, my phone notes. And then let me look at my notebook. Um, getting versus giving laughs. Mm. That was something that, that Beth, is it Lapidus or Lapidus? Uh, Lapidus. Lapidus. Okay, Beth Lapidus brought up, which is just a really interesting divide in, in comedy that I had never thought about before. Yeah. And it really, it, it really excited me. I thought, oh my gosh, there was a time for... D- at least the first decade of my comedy where I just, because yeah. I needed, I needed to get further my act that, that it was so it felt. And it was, it was one particular manager and probably another manager told mm-hmm. him, but Barry Katz used to always say you had to kill and anything yeah. less than killing, you were a failure. And then the, the, the other side of it was you have to turn your act into a TV show yes, yeah, so that yeah. you can get an audience that way. And that, and that was very important for a while, but the idea of, of killing and measuring your su- success and, and whether you're good at this by how hard you killed these mainstream audiences was just a great way to to strangle comedy. But but th- th- speak to that, the giving yeah. versus getting laughs, because I, I think it's it's such an, an important idea. Yeah, so Beth, Beth said that on her episode of this podcast, and so th- for those who didn't listen, she created this, this uh, show, this weekly show. It still exists now. I think it's mostly on Zoom called Uncabaret. And... I brought it up because I was writing about the early 90s, you sort of, when comedy was supposed to be dead, yeah. you had these two giant revolutions in comedy that really yes. changed it. You had this sort of rise of black-owned comedy clubs, and you had alternative comedy. That was very conversational. The, the, the David Cross said it was comedy without the cadence. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good— and There's a lot of things. There's, yeah. a, there's a quote that I don't know who said it. Some people— Everyone, when people don't know who says it, they just say Janine said it, but then Janine, <laughs> but then Janine doesn't right? take credit for anything, no, so it's impossible. No, no. So, so it's uh, less jokes, more you is the thing. Oh, I, I love that. Which yeah. I like, which yeah. is, um, and, but, you know, you'd be doing this idea of things in coffee shops or bookstores, which now just happens and everyone plays them. It's like it just never happened before and then comedians are doing it. And um, I should note, like, obviously not counting the coffee shops in the 1950s and 60s that Mrs. Maisel performed in. Uh, <laughs> but so um, so the, the the goal is like with Uncabaret there were certain rules how people follow them differed but the basic idea was no, pre- no material we've done before nothing sort of written down she would be in the back with a microphone you're telling a story and she would ask questions yeah. and you know, the comedy that grew out of it was much more conversational. And all comedy up until very recently, which is a, we can, is a side thing, took on that eventually, which is now all comedy became conversational. The yes. idea that you would just be like, like Yanni, uh, Yanni whatever his name is, <laughs> Henny Youngman, Henny just, Youngman, yeah, just yeah, throwing yeah. out one-liners right, yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. or throwing out what joke jokes or even things that feel like jokes is gone. Everything is sort of built into whatever. And that became the default style of almost all comedy. But now people are doing jokes again, and they think they shouldn't. But, um, <laughs> and the, the part of it was all of it. The, it builds to the sort of idea, the distinction between getting laughs and give, giving laughs, which is the audience is not your enemy. You're you're not trying to trick them. You're not trying to destroy them. They they are supporting you. Yes. And you and that allows you to get to places you wouldn't get otherwise. I think. I feel I've look I've interviewed I don't know how many comedians 200 comedians or something like that and almost all right on stage and that only works if there's a certain mix of 
I'm both cornered and the audience is letting me keep yeah. on talking about it. Right. So like, th- and so if the audience is not listening, or and if you, you treat the audience cynically, then you're not listening to them. And if the audience is um, treat, you know, in turn being like, get to it, that's not good either. So the idea is like, we're in this together. We're giving them our time. They're giving us your time. And the the thing that I I think it builds to is, you know, I talk about truth and the, the truth and comedy became fetishized around Louis at the time about how honest he was being up there. Right. And it was one. It's one of the great ironies. It's, it, regardless of all the other stuff about him, it's just sort of <laughs> how much people are obsessed with how honest he was, yeah. and then like the fact that he, what came out is just it is a, a a funny thing to happen. Sure. Regardless of it also being a terrible thing that happened. It's Greek myth type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a yeah. classic irony. But then, so then, what is the goal to aspire to? Is if because like obviously when a comedian is being truthful on there, it feels something, and good art can come from it, and. The answer is something that I quote you, I believe, saying, which is like, which is about vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, it is not about just, here's the thing that happened. It's about what is scary. And when you're doing comedy at the beginning, it's always vulnerable. It's vulnerable to go up there and be like, I think this is funny. Even if you're saying airplane food tastes bad. If you've never said that out loud and you think this is what your brain is, that's scary. You're being vulnerable. But as time goes on, you're not being vulnerable. And what happens is a lot of people go like, well, I don't give a shit. Like, I like killing, so I'm just going to keep yeah. on doing it. Yeah. I don't want to be scared up there. That's scary. And and it takes a receptive audience and a, a certain audience to be like, it's okay. Like, try it. And it, it's, it's still scary for comedians. Comedians who I think are great. I was just talking to Hari Konobolu, and he was just like, it's still scary to be personal up there. And you're like, but you've been doing forever. It's like, right. and vulnerability is not... This sort of singular idea of truth that I think is often given, which is like, I'm being truthful. I'm telling you the truth. There's one truth that this is it. It's much more about like the um, – a truth you can sort of only get to through the collective. And and that is the standard that I underline. It's like, are you being vulnerable up there? Are you giving a part of yourself that is – you wouldn't maybe – that is it's scary to give. And it's not – um, good just because it's scary, but there is something obviously that happens there, and that's rare. That's a third rail that is not talked about, the thing that we're not talking about. And I will say, like, just because when you talk about this, you sometimes go like, well, then what am I saying? All comedians must talk about all their traumas on stage. It's like, no, but if you're, it is just as vulnerable to, like, do, like, I read about Christian Shaw. Christian Shaw is my favorite yes. comedian in the book. And yes. it is vulnerable to do what she does, which is yes. really go out there. Yes. Which is, like, this is yes. no one's I idea. I think this is funny. Yeah. Yes. And there's yeah. there's no nothing real I could point to that shows, well, this worked for someone else. Right. This is just, this is truly how my brain yes. perceives the world. And I'm giving it to you to, to tell me if my existence is valid or not. That can be scary as well. But both demand a certain amount of really putting yourself out there, yeah. really swinging big. You know, that she, Christian Schultz, dreams of a birdcage that's empty, and she goes, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'm going to spend $500 on this birdcage, and then we'll figure it out. That's yeah. scary. Sure. Spend $500 on it. Yeah. So, like, it, that is, so when I say giving, it's like truly giving yourself to it. Like, we expect all artists to. Yeah. When you love comedy as much as we do, we're we're just so blown away by the originality that yes. I worked with a, a a 
gentleman named Jaron George over the weekend from in Portland, Oregon, and I was commenting to the the my tour manager. I said, "He doesn't sound like anybody yeah. else." Do you know how hard that is to be in this when business? When I see it, I try to. I, like, I re- yeah, I saw uh, Brittany Carney did a joke. Brittany Carney's another great example. I, she did she a is joke like nobody. Else. I reached out, and, and I was that like, on its own yeah. is an incredible success and accomplishment. I said, "Do." I don't know if the audience communicated that this was worth doing, but I promise you it's like really worth yes. doing. And I'll do that because I because the audience doesn't the audience isn't thinking as I am, which is I'm right. both in it but also yeah. being like can I put my thumb on the scale a little bit for yes. <laughs> the direction things I love are going. It. Yeah. And also you know my favorite moments I see a young comedian who and she's a little bit more savage, but even so, it's like the find. How do you find your voice? Is sort of the thing that's the yeah. hardest for comedians. Even yes. be harder than can I write a good joke? It's like how do you find your voice? Totally. And I, I you, at least I often feel like I can see the part of a joke, the um, that I'm like that's where you can go. There's a the TV show Friday Night Lights. There's a Matt Saracen is a quarterback who wants to be an artist, and he paints some. He draws something, and he meets this artist. Oh, who, I've seen every episode. Yeah, yeah. Of that so he show rips twice. up the thing, yeah, yeah, and he yeah, yeah. rips it up, and just shows the hand. Yeah. And it's like draw that yeah. hand. Basically, yes. like this hand is who you are as an yes. artist. So I'll see an act, and there'll be a maybe a part of a joke or something like that, and I will be like, I won't be like, this is your hand because I will freak people out. <laughs> well, now they'll listen to it and know that I'm doing that. Anytime I've given a comedian yeah. any positive feedback, yeah. But I will be like. I know enough comedians to know what. Oh, this is different. This is a spark of a person. This is this is a. Every person is an individual on Earth, but it's only so many of us who can express that individuality and have other people understand it. So when I can see that, I'm like, yeah. Oh, you have that. You don't have to be just another comedian doing the job. You have a that thing. Yeah. Eventually, an amount of people. Yeah. Will get. Will that amount be a football stadium? Will that amount be a hundred people on? Who knows? But like that is. And you and you can't duplicate that. <laughs> now it is time for the laughing round, which is like a lightning, but because it is a comedy podcast, it is laughing. Do you have a favorite joke? Joke? You did do one in the in the book that you're yes, that yes, that's the one I'm going to. So okay. it's a joke that I I've told it once, which was I told it on the Gilbert Gottfried episode, but I haven't told it in years. Um, so it is. I will tell it here for okay, people good. who are wondering. Um, it's my so the joke was told by my puppy, um, <laughs> so is, that's important context. That means grandmother in, oh, yes, in Yiddish, yeah. <laughs> and it's important context. So let's see if I can remember the joke. So a nun passes away, um, uh, and she goes up to she ascends to the clouds, and she's met by an angel, and they're like, um, sometimes they name her Marie. I don't know if that's part of the joke. So then they go, Marie, you live such a wonderful life. You've dedicated your life to service. And Jesus or whatever. Um, <laughs> and welcome. I'm going to take you to heaven. So they're walking along the clouds. And they Marie hears this terrible blood-curdling sound. And she's like, what? she goes to the angel, what was that? And she goes, oh, uh, they're just drilling the hole for the wings. And she's like, okay. And she keep on walking. They keep on walking. Again, they hear, she hears a worse scream the worst scream she's ever heard in her life and she goes what's that it's like oh they're just drilling the holes for the halo um and she's okay so they keep on walking they get to the pearly gates she meets saint peter's 
Uh, St. Peter was like, Marie, you live such a wonderful life. You dedicated yourself to service. Welcome to Pearly Gates of, of Heaven. Um, go walking in or whatever. And she goes, I think I'm, I think I'm good. <laughs> and he's like, you're sure? You know what the opposite is. You, you go to hell and you'll, you'll get raped. You'll get sodomized. And she goes, well, at least I have the holes for that. So as I write about in the book, it's like a rape joke told by a puppy. So like that's that is context for that joke to make yeah. sense, right? It's like right. there are jokes yeah. about a lot of things that who tells them matters to you, and I, there's the comedians who would say that on stage who might have been accused for certain things that I would be like, "Where's the where's that joke at?" But right. when my puppy told it, it was yeah, not of that. Course, yeah. So it's like the example I use. There's an Anthony Justin joke, which is like. Who do you think said the first million was the hardest? Hitler? And, <laughs> yeah. and I was and I heard and I thought it was so funny. And yeah. I he's not Jewish, but I generally probably believe he's not anti Semitic. Right. But there are comedians working today that oh, if yeah, they yeah, said yeah. it, that yeah. I'd be like, I don't think their audience right. will they can repeat that joke yeah. and they're not they're gonna repeat this joke at in groups and yeah. in that group. It's a fascist rally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Next thing totally. You know. Yeah. That's All what right. I want to tell this, Okay, this next one is do you have an interaction with a legendary comedian, living or dead, you're willing to share? Yes. I don't. They're not You have great. a lot of them. Yeah. Well, most of them are just, I interviewed a person. But yeah. so you're one, pre-journalism, I worked at Witchcraft, which was a sandwich chain created by Tom oh, Collegian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until I became a writer. I said it was the best job I ever had. Just because there was such pride in the work. Yeah. Um, anyway, one time David Letterman came in <gasps> and he bought two cookies. And he was nice to everybody, but he just sort of like in a line. It was they were in Tribeca. It was a very busy location, and he just wanted two cookies. I think they were the peanut butter cookies. They were quite good. Um, and then the other story, which I'll tell part of, which was the story I tell in the book, which is the third time I saw Dave, uh, third time I saw Chris Rockbaum, right. which was I was doing these charity comedy shows with Padma um, from Taste the Nation and yeah. uh, Top Chef. I I just asked her if she wants to put on charity comedy shows, and she said sure. And we did, and they're incredible. Yeah. Um, Best audiences I've ever seen just because – I don't know what it was, but it's just everyone's like, this is amazing. It was so exciting because it was all these people who are now such bigger comedians at a time when it was still exciting to see them. Mix Padma's there, and it was like defiant because it was meant to be sort of in contrast of a lot of things that were happening in comedy. And then there was – you know, I helped curate it, so it's like you had a range of type of – like Roy Wood Jr. was there, but then also um, like Catherine Cohen or Larry Owens was doing things. So – um Padma invites Chris because they're friends or friendly, and he shows up, but he goes through the green room because he's Chris Rock. And <laughs> imagine you're at a comedy show and Chris Rock just watch, watching. So he comes to the green room, and I'm a big fan of Chris Rock. Chris Rock is my favorite comedian growing up. Yeah. I think he is one of the five greatest comedians sure. of all time. Um, and I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, is Padma here? And I was like, yeah. And I knew her. Padma, I was like, I can show you where she was sitting. Um, and then Michelle Wolf was on, and he knows Michelle Wolf. He's like, I'll I'll just watch some. So he sits. You've been to the Bell House. The Bell House is yeah has like three little steps up to the stage, yep. and he just sits on him so gently. It's it, like I took a picture of it because it it is really so it was so charming that he was just sitting there gently listening. Not really watching, just listening. Wait, is he in the, on the audience side? No, not on the audience the, side. On the, on yeah, backstage. I was trying to picture that because I was like, that would be weird if he was sitting on the on, – because no, there on are the steps on the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On but the stages, stage on the yeah. <laughs> okay, so he's listening through the curtain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is great. And he's just listening. And he's just like 
And then he goes to me, as I say, his friend. He talks about comedy with yeah. me. And he just goes, <laughs> her new stuff is great. Yeah. I was like, yeah, me and you. <laughs> Cutting it up. And so then I was like, do you want to go on? And then there's just something about this story. And, like, I write about it. I just say kind of the facts of it. But, like, Chris Rock was really the person that, like, opened my eyes of, like, comedy as this thing. Like, I I loved in Living Color. Living Color was the first thing that I was obsessed with. My dad liked in Living Color. He played it for me. I was just like, oh, my God, these people are – I didn't even know what the hell they were talking about. It's just the right. funny thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was incredible. And then I saw – and then I watched The Simpsons, and The Simpsons was my favorite thing, my favorite thing that exists. And then – um Chris Rock's special came out and like yeah. the immensity of it. And I'm again like watching it back, like, what did I even know what any of it was? But you just can tell. And there's and and then through I was just obsessed with Chris Rock. And so then yeah, he's just like, Hey, do you want to go on? Chris Rock, and you want me to whatever. And he's like, No. But then you could tell he's like, What is happening? <laughs> it's like there this audience is upset. He's like, Patton was doing a show and this audience is doing it. And Michelle. So he, he kind of goes up with Michelle to just be like, hello. And the people are like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. And then she leaves. Now he's just out there. And um, he does terribly. <laughs> and it was just sort of like, and so it's beautiful because it's like, that's Chris Rock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. he wasn't going the, up there to bomb, but he you just... You obeyed th- the rule of threes, yeah. except that there was no twist at the end. <laughs> you you did three things, but the twist was that he's still bombing. Yeah, he's still. <laughs> and people were like... and and But it was still like, well, that's what, it, I, that's what Chris Rock does. Yeah. Like, he didn't... It's not only when he's being like, I'm going to the show to bomb. He's like... I don't know. I'm just going to. Yeah. And then so then he brings on Larry Owens who sings. Like his Larry Owens is as different as a comedian. I love Larry Owens. My gosh. On and off stage, he just, uh, just a joy to be around. But the interesting thing, I remember early on in my comedy career, or maybe before I even started, Jim Carrey saying that you needed to go up there and bomb because it relieved you of yeah. this thing where I need to please. And But he didn't add this. You can't do that for a long time <laughs> because you will not get rehired and it could it could sabotage your entire career. Yeah, and also helps being Jim Carrey the whole time. Yes, exactly. I watch videos of Jim Carrey's material. Like, this is not material. This no. is just like yada, no. yada, yada, yeah. faces. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let me... Um, okay, so that's my That was great. I... My interactions with Chris Rock were always... he would He would break my balls in a way that... We don't know each other that well, <laughs> and he would break my balls at the comedy cellar. And then after the Great Depression came out, he left me the most lovely voicemail. And all the times of me thinking, "Why does he have to be mean to me every time I see him?" <laughs> I say, "Yeah, but he left me yeah. the kindest voicemail." Okay, why are you going to make me ask you this? What? Because oh, best it, comic working. Yeah, present. I should go present comic, company excluded. Because I'm going to add parenthetically, of course, present company. No, I'm just joking. Imagine. Um, I think I know the answer to this. So can I think what my answer I, is? I think your answer. 
Here's what my answer would be, and also what I think your answer is going to be, and I think they're identical. I think it's Maria Bamford. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, she's a fucking a. I'd argue with you if you said she's comedian alive. She's yeah, I, it's Richard Pryor than Maria Bamford. I yes, think comedian that ever yes. And, Degree of difficulty yeah. using all the tools yep. in the comedy toolbox, timeliness, and also the idea of vulnerability and everything you, you everything we go across i remember seeing and and the bc boys make an allusion to this in a song talking about they got an a from modi for mm. sticking a theme and it turns out cool modi had given rappers report cards and they show the report card in the beastie boys book and and all the grades and and if we were due to, to do that for a, a comedian of course, yes. Maria Bamford and some others would get straight A's, but also she's the valedictorian of, of my classes as well as every comedian I've, I've followed since I, since I started. I've never seen anybody. And, and by the way, I saw her doing similar stuff at the, the comedy at the, on the 101 Highway, which was in this diner, and it was adjacent to just the, the kitchen, it seemed like. Yeah. And she was doing those voices and the characters and, and the, the mom and the, and the highly elevated rhetoric that, yeah. that she does so well, which is which is. Sometimes I, I think, how does a comedian like that evolve with the audiences you have to yeah. face when you're starting out? It's, it's miraculous. Yeah. It's, and and yeah. her handicap in that she suffered from mental illness and was in so much pain a lot of the time. It is, you know, the, 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 the examples I think of is Richard Pryor and, and Marie Bamford of doing it at the pinnacle of sort of what it can be done yes. in all ways, which is like regular joke writing. The voice, the sort of performance <laughs> yes. of it, the sort of understanding. And I don't know, like the problem is like Richard Pryor was not interviewed this way because no one gave a shit about what comedians were doing. Right. So I don't know if he'd be like, I thought about the form and realized. Like, <laughs> but like I either he did intuitively or not. And, and some Maria, some of it's intuitive as well. But like they understood there's bounds already being put in place in this art form. And I actually don't feel like I feel like I can actually break through those bounds without any example of someone really did it to the degree they did yeah. while still having all the chops of doing it. Hari said that in a previous episode, like, there's so many great comedians that do a part of what Richard Pryor was doing. Yes. They're like, ah, just the vulnerable part, right? Or yeah. they just do the race critiques or they just yes. are able to do just the silly voices, all whatever. Yeah. They just do the sex material, something like that. Right. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, have splintered Maria Bamford's thing up. She, you know, she was way ahead of time in terms of how she talked about mental health, but even yeah. like, she had that special where she did it for different audiences or something like that. And that yeah. felt like – or talked to her parents and I felt like – The parents won the special, special, special. But like that felt like there's comedians now who are trying to do different things with specials that are essentially just doing riffs on that. Yeah. Now they're doing – they're being more pretentious about it in, in ways that I find ultimately good. Like it's good for yes. this art form to have pretension. Agreed. But like that just organically came out of her. And, and so it's like it is – you know, they they to me are the high watermark. I, I used to say like comedy so subjective that the only objective thing we have is that Richard Pryor is the greatest to ever do it. <laughs> so then it's like, well, at least if that's the standard, yeah. then let's right. and then that's the value that. And to me, that's like okay. So if we have a value system that's Marie Bamford and Richard Pryor, then we should hold comedians. If we can hold comedians up to that, at yeah. least that is a starting point yes. of how to like be like what is. Oh, good. I love that. I love that. Okay. Do you have advice I mean, sure. for an aspiring comedian? Some I've said already, but I'll say this. This is for uh, – for, uh, this is a um, an aspiring comedian who, like, 
we mean like in the path to be famous broadly defined is like you don't have to move to LA just when your friends are moving to LA. <laughs> um, and it's hard because it happens over and over again and I write yeah. about it in the book, which yeah. is scenes come and go, someone gets a gig and everyone gets itchy because they now are, you have a friend who's rich and you are not rich at all and you're working your day job. This is and, such great advice. And it is, and it's hard. It is, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm a coward, but also like you, there are opportunities there and it is a version of like, don't be seen until you're ready, but it's, it's more so like you will not be able to get up as much. You will be, you know, because when comedians with LA, they stay there. So like the shows that you're booking on has everyone there where there's, there's opportunity in New York to reascend to be the 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 hot new thing in in New York in a sort of exciting way, and but you move to LA and then now you're like, how many pilot scripts did I write? Am <laughs> I should I audition for a commercial? Yeah, maybe if I get that commercial, I'll give me some breathing room right. to like work on my stuff. And then the next thing you know, you're the Verizon woman, and then you can't work on your stuff. Or just at minimum, you didn't totally get of who you were yet. And then you're now becoming just who the city is telling you who you are. Yeah. And some people works out for and they become successful, whatever. But a lot of people, they haven't figured out who themselves are in, in, in a way that will – sure, they don't make – they don't hit in the sort of first rush the industry has when they learn a new scene exists. Yeah. We're like, let's book up everyone they can. And yeah, they book yeah, six yeah, people yeah. and right. then the next thing you know, you're the ninth person. Yeah. But – if that person does not take that to be like, it's over, I can you can become a more interesting artist and you're better prepared when you're just a visionary, right? Like have a vision that is distinct and clearly articulated and you can more likely do that in New York. So that's my first thing. And the second thing which I mentioned is like people are like telling jokes now, right now, like jokes. Not like – not like – it's four minutes, and it's, but it's ultimately about whatever. Like yeah. jokes that sound like jokes that 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 a kid would be like, I know that that's a joke. I like <laughs> I'm 14 years old. I just graduated from not reading joke books anymore. Right. And there's a lot of reasons probably why this has happened, but it is like, and this is and to distinguish this from their one liner comedians is a different tradition. The yeah. Mitch Hedberg, right, where you're creating a world in a small yes. thing. Do that. A million people can do that. There's yes. always use for those type of people. There's a guy, Benny Feldman, who currently is doing these incredible. Um, but like jokes. And it is so weird to me. Sure. And like I've been insulated from this. I haven't noticed. It's it. a new I just see it. I'm going to these shows. I'm seeing young people wow. do jokes. And I'm like, not everyone has to be Janine Garofalo, but yeah. some people need to be Janine Garofalo. <laughs> right. There needs to be people who just yeah. go up there and like give you themselves. And I think just on a basic formal level, it is more interesting when you are not knowing the rhythm of the jokes and you're yeah. not just playing the rhythm of the audience. Yeah. Like of the many things that lead to hackery besides topic is literally just like you're confident and you say jokes in a rhythm and the audience laughs because they know what it is. Wow. Like Steve Martin fought that fight 50 years ago yeah. to change the rhythm of it. Like yeah, it's hard because it's scarier, but like expand things out. Do different rhythms of things. Talk longer. Yeah, it doesn't have to be personal, but just like literally, just like it's jarring, it's, right? It's so just the sing song, yeah, yeah, sing song, and it's and, like it works and, for short clips, yeah, and also it's bad acting, yeah, yeah, because you're completely rupturing yeah. the reality. There's a version of it that 
I akin to like if a comedian is singing, right? Because if a comedian's singing, yes. you're going, I know this is fake. You know this is right, fake. Right, so right, we're right. honestly yeah, yeah, yeah. in a fake yeah. space. So you can yeah. be like, oh, it's like neo vaudeville, but that's not how people are doing it. They're just yeah. doing it because they're like, that's what jokes sound like, and like young people like the sound of it. Unless you're somehow doing it to the where it's like um, classical revival or whatever in painting, right? It just you're just protecting yourself. You're essentially just like not sure. you're you're creating more shields away from you and the audience. And like, as far as I can tell, the most interesting work that's ever happened in comedy is when that doesn't happen. Yeah, but like, totally. No, I agree. That's with that. my perspective because I don't have yeah. to live my life. I don't have to live yeah. your life. Right, but it's that compare and despair. Yeah, it's and that, hard, and that's that's very difficult. And you have your team but, who you know get a good manager. You don't need your first manager just because they asked you. Right. Yes. Get a person who's invested you as you as an artist and yes. wants you to have a long term yes. career. That's why I've been very fortunate with my manager right now. Is also a contributor creatively. He yeah. had the idea for doing a a hybrid of a special and a documentary when that was not a thing that was being done as frequently as it is now. So yeah. I'm very grateful, Brian Stern. And yeah. And so everyone goes, I'm Brian Stern. I'm sure he has plenty of people. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't work like, that way, but like, it's like, it, it matters, especially for managers, it matters so much more they get you than which place they're at. Totally. Totally. Because it's like, yeah. so that's, you know, and if you are a person who is aspiring to be a comedian, but like doesn't really care about being famous, then you don't, comedy doesn't have to be your job. It's allowed. To yeah. have hobbyists just like every other art form yes. has. And yes. that does not mean what you're doing is not worthwhile to your soul. It's just you're not depending on it to live. And in many ways, that's more sophisticated. <laughs> totally. Totally. I, I admire that. And and I believe in in doing things creatively <laughs> yeah. just to th- – It's writing good for a, you. Writing a novel and putting it in a drawer is very healthy. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean it's like it's good for your life and that's enough. You don't yeah. need – to be famous and it's not bad if you don't want to be it's like if you do it and you enjoy doing it and it's and it's hard for you whatever like that is noble and this idea that your career has to be the thing that your number one dream is is a modern trick that capitalism uh, played on us to have us accept less money yes oh my gosh yeah it's part of this cult that we've yeah it's like oh you love doing it so then you'll do it for basically free right and then you're like (laughs) wait uh, so it's just like Anyway, okay. I guess awesome. I can be like, that's it. <laughs> thank you okay. so much for doing oh, this. Oh, this was this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank and you for thank you for reading. Yeah, and I was honored that you asked me to do this. <laughs> this is a very special position. I'm so grateful. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can pre-order Comedy Book or order Misfit wherever books are sold. Come to my New York book release on November 7th and LA show on November 13th. Ticket links in the show notes. Ticket links are in the show notes. Good One is produced by myself and Jelani Carter. Gotham Shudishin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One's a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Tuesday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes, mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one.